This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of October 6, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 150 of Defender Radio. It's been a long week for us at APFA. The celebration we were having over the RCMP's decision to ditch their muskrat fur hats for their regular cold weather uniforms was brought to an abrupt halt. The conservative government stated they would overturn the decision in order to protect the fur industry. You'll hear more about this from one of our guests this week, but to get the details and sign the petition asking the government to honor the RCMP's decision, check out FurBearDefenders.com or visit us on Facebook at Facebook.com FurFree or Twitter with at FurBearers. In addition to the media hoopla caused by the government's decision, we're also busy getting ready for the 2014 Living with Wildlife Conference in Toronto. And this week, we're bringing you interviews from two of our speakers. Camille Labchuk, a former Green Party candidate and animal rights lawyer, will be presenting at the conference on October 17. She recently joined us to talk about her work using the law for the animals, as well as how she's fighting the government's overruling of the RCMP decision. Following Camille will be Donna Doyle of the Town of Oakville's Environmental Policy Department. Donna has played a vital role in the development of a wildlife plan, an environmental plan, and most recently a road ecology plan, leading the town of Oakville to a higher standard of living for animals. Let's get started with Camille. Known widely as the premier attorney for animal welfare advocates and animal-related causes, Camille works hard to protect animals under the weak but existing animal welfare legislation and other laws. She joined us to describe her work, as well as her reaction and subsequent plan for handling the developing RCMP fur hat issue. Tell me a bit about uh, yourself and your law practice and what it is you do every day. Well, I am an animal rights lawyer, which uh, sounds really great and exciting, although I have to say it's a bit of a misnomer because animals in Canada don't really have any legal rights enshrined in the law. So I say animal rights lawyer, but really what that means is that I have to find creative ways to use laws that don't necessarily pertain to animals to try to enhance their protections and better their position in the eyes of the law and also help out the people uh, like fur bear defenders or other nonprofit groups or individual advocates who are trying to make a difference for animals. What what are some of the things that you might come up against regularly? I mean, is it a lot of slap suits or is it a lot of challenging existing legislation? Well, there's all kinds of really fascinating cases. So slap suits, uh, defamation, that's definitely something that uh, is pervasive throughout uh, the field of animal rights. Uh, you know, I advise organizations and individuals on how to avoid the defamation suits in the first place, which is always the best strategy. Uh, and also, I'm happy to step in and defend anybody who has to uh, either fight against one or, or go on the offensive and file one because because they've been defamed. So there's a lot of interesting uh, civil law issues there. Um, I also practice in criminal law, and uh, you know what that entails in the context of animal issues is often defending people who've been charged with criminal offenses uh, in relation to their activism around animal issues. Uh, so whether it's protesters who, uh, you know, got on the wrong side of the police at the protest, 
or conversely, whether it's uh, somebody feels threatened uh, and feels that, uh, you know, an animal youth industry uh, person has committed the criminal offense against them. I can go after that person on their behalf and try to, you know, protect activists from being intimidated uh, by people who use and abuse animals. So, so that's one fascinating area. Uh, but then there's also sort of the bigger picture cases that I uh, like to take on, which involves looking at the way the law is going in the country and trying to get in on uh, sort of strategic, groundbreaking, boundary-pushing type cases that advance maybe the legal standing of animals or some other aspect of animals in the law to, uh, to try to you know, give them some rights and, and, and put them in a better legal position in Canada. Um, now, moving forward from that, one of the things you and I have talked about in recent days um, due to the, the debate over the RCMP fur hats, that's, that's really gone national. Um, uh, there, there's two elements to that. And the first one I want to start with is the association being called radical. And this is something that you and I had a, a little bit of an email flurry about. Uh, so I was wondering if you could maybe explain to the audience sort of the, that conversation and the problems that, uh, that I came up against when I felt that it, it was maybe inappropriate for the government to be saying that. Yeah, interesting issue. So background to this to the listeners is that, uh, of course, when the government reversed the RCMP decision to uh, stop using for hats uh, for officers, uh, they made the announcement on the floor of the House of Commons during question period. So a backbench government MP stood up and said, what's the government going to do about these animal rights radicals who are, uh, you know, rubbing their hands together with glee that the RCMP has gotten rid of the fur? Uh, and, of course, Environment Minister Liliana Aglukak stood up and uh, responded using more of the radical rhetorical uh, language uh, to sort of flag animal rights activists who were responsible for this change. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the obvious and uh, immediate reaction to that is, why, why are they calling us radicals just because we don't want animals to be abused and tortured? What's radical about that? And, <laughs> you know, it's a defamation. It's a defamation to call someone a radical. Couple issues there. A, it's probably not defamation to call somebody a radical because the word has all kinds of meanings. But B, even if it was, the government and Leona Oglukak and that backbench MP couldn't be sued for it because they said the words in the House of Commons. And we've got something uh, which is actually a useful concept, uh, although sometimes it can be abused, but it's called parliamentary privilege. And that protects any parliamentarian who says something on the floor of the House of Commons from uh, from being sued, essentially. So there's no cause of action there, unfortunately. Okay, and then moving forward from that, again, still on the RCMP issue, you made an announcement which, which went viral on Twitter, and we are very proud to be supporting uh, there as well as here in this interview, um, that you would represent any RCMP officer who did not want to be forced to wear a fur hat. Can you explain that a bit? That's right. And, and this is an idea. Uh, this is, I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, how sometimes you have to use the law creatively to protect animals because they don't really have any legal rights. And this, uh, the offer that I put there, out there is sort of an example of that. It's using uh, a person's human rights to try to uh, help animals as well. So uh, the rationale behind that, uh, you know, what I said is I'd be happy to uh, represent pro bono any RCMP officer who doesn't want to be forced to wear uh, fur by Leona Glutak and the Conservative government. And uh, the beauty of it is that 
the government can't force them to wear fur. Um, there's, in a few cases, one in particular, uh, that say pretty clearly that it's a charter-protected right to have beliefs about animals, have beliefs about vegetarianism, for example, and not be forced by the government to do something that's uh, out of step with those beliefs. So the example I point people toward is a, is a court case where uh, an inmate in a federal facility uh, wasn't being provided with vegetarian food despite his strongly held beliefs that uh, he should not be eating animals. So he sued the government because he felt it was, it was wrong that they uh, weren't respecting his fundamental human rights. Uh, and he won very clearly and decisively. And the court said, uh, hey, government, you have to respect people's beliefs in this regard. So the argument is that uh, a Mountie who doesn't want to wear fur and is being forced to wear fur by the government. And, you know, we'll see how they uh, expound upon this policy and, and whether it comes to that. Uh, but if, if a Mountie doesn't want to wear fur, they uh, have the legal right not to do so. And I'm happy to help them enforce that right. Excellent. Um, and people who do have questions and concerns about animal welfare issues, uh, who may want to feel out some issues uh, with your expertise, where is it they can get in touch with you to get more information? Absolutely. They, they can uh, send me a, an email, clabcheck at gmail.com anytime. Um, I'm happy to meet and chat with anyone. I will take on cases that push the boundaries for animals, but I'll also do private matters like uh, disputes over veterinary issues. Uh, issues with uh, the OSPCA, pit bull, pit bull defense cases, dog defense cases, you know, really anything uh, that, that pertains to animal issues and the law. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416-750-9453. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. Beaver dams help clean water, promote songbird diversity, encourage fish populations, and create better soil and a cleaner environment. Beavers are good for Canada, but will we be good to them? Find out more at FurBearerDefenders.com and give a damn about beavers. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more preview coverage of our 2014 Living with Wildlife Conference in Toronto on October 17. Donna Doyle is an environmental policy manager with the town of Oakville who has played an important role in the creation of several key policies protecting the environment, 
wildlife, and specific ecosystems during residential development. She recently joined us to discuss her work and offer an idea of what guests will learn at the 2014 Living with Wildlife Conference. Tell me a bit about the, uh, the, the origins of developing a wildlife plan for the town of Oakville. In Oakville, we had quite a few lands north of Dundas that were undeveloped and the intent was to develop, to develop those comprehensively, so that's called the North Oakville lands. Uh, as part of that, we started to develop an environmental strategic plan to make sure that it was done properly and that ended up being the basis for a lot of our environmental programs. That was done in 2005. And so part of the environmental strategic plan said that we should develop a wildlife strategy because we knew that with development uh, comes the displacement of animals, you start to come into conflict situations, plus we want it to protect our, our biodiversity in those areas. So in 2012, we came out with the Oakville Wildlife Strategy. And what that was was... Uh, kind of a comprehensive overview of wildlife in Oakville, the issues that uh, we were finding were occurring with that, both for wildlife and for residents and the town, and then uh, a set of recommendations that we could move forward to help make things better. Well, and I remember when that came out, and it was, um, it really was one of the first in Ontario, I think, but it was also presented in such a way that as new information comes to light, it is flexible. Um, which is something I enjoyed about it. Yeah, no, actually, and it was really good. So just about the part uh, with saying that it was one of the first of its kind, there were so many bits and pieces that so many other communities and even well, Ministry of Natural Resources and different organizations were doing in regards to wildlife, but nothing was really comprehensive. And then with the move of the province starting to pull back from a lot of, uh, a lot of things with the Ministry of Natural Resources, Really, municipalities were pretty much left on their own, so we started to pull together uh, different partners and different people that were involved in uh, dealing with wildlife so we could get their input. And yes, it's a very flexible uh, program. And actually, we're looking to be updating it in the next year, so 2015, and looking to expand it out to a whole biodiversity program where wildlife will be a whole separate component of that. Excellent. And something I always uh, found interesting too, and, and this is separate but connected, was um, the North Oakville Secondary Plan was, was the, the name uh, of the, the program, but it was looking at the connectivity of all of the, the green spaces. And that's something in Oakville, um, as many, many other suburbs across the country have dealt with, as development comes in, you get little pockets of forest, and then you get all kinds of issues as a result of that. So this new plan took a long look at keeping all of it connected. Uh, why was that so important and how did that, how did that process occur? <laughs> that, uh, yeah, that took a long time to do. Yeah, and you're right. The way that development happens nowadays, you've got so many different landowners and developers. They're all in piecemeal fashion that they, they develop. So you don't really get a chance to look at something comprehensively. And the North Oakville plan was really one of the only uh, instances where there was that size of, of land uh, available to look at comprehensively. So it took about, uh, I think it was about 10 years, a lot of uh, battles over that. And the idea was that you've got this opportunity to make sure that there's corridors linking through protecting those features that you really want to, but not just the features, all the linkages to it. Because if you're right, if you've just got pockets, wildlife 
for things like roads, for example. They can't cross roads that effectively. If you uh, dry up some of the wetlands and build through the wetlands, things that, that were in there are going to be cut off from certain areas of their habitat that they might need for reproduction or for different parts of their, uh, their, their sort of life cycle. So, yeah, it was planned comprehensively, and we're just starting to build now. Uh, and we're starting to have those lands come into public ownership. So as, as developers build the lands uh, that we've identified as natural heritage system areas come into the town's ownership. And so we're going to be working uh, to build those up and start uh, doing restoration projects. We've actually started working uh, conservation Halton is leading that in Glen Orkey, which is a huge uh, conservation area in the middle of the, in kind of the centerpiece of this natural heritage system. And a lot of restoration work is already going on. We've got a constructed wetland that's already starting to function uh, pretty well. It's starting to attract some waterfowl. We've got some snakes there, a couple of different types of amphibians. So it's, it's pretty exciting, actually. My recollection is that uh, throughout this whole process, not only was there buy-in and support from the political level, but general residents were also very supportive of this idea of protecting areas, of making sure biodiversity stayed in place. And even in instances of wildlife conflicts, uh, because this plan, this other plan, wildlife plan, was starting to come together or was already in place, the town was able to appropriately respond with education and enforcement. So... How much, like, I mean, for other communities that are looking at doing something like this, how important is it to get that public buy-in before you start planning or during the planning process? Oh, I think it's hugely important. And kind of the story about uh, how we started, well, this with the whole natural heritage system, uh, there were the plans to develop it. Things were starting to come in. And it was more a casual conversation with some of the planning staff, with uh, some residents. And when they found out what was happening, they, they were the ones who actually took charge. So it really was uh, a public-led thing initially. And, you know, there were certainly some people uh, at the town that were also on board with it that helped move that forward. So it was kind of a collaboration, kind of a discussion at first. When people found out, they got very upset. And I think a lot of the public... It's not that they don't want to do anything about, you know, things like protecting wildlife or protecting green space. It's just that they don't know where to start. So I think getting the public involved, if you're a municipal employee, it means getting the word out there, even if it's just in your own personal time, if it's having education programs. And then if you're just a resident or member of the public, find out what's going on. Call your municipality. Ask about different sorts of uh, plans that they have for green space, for wildlife. What are they doing? And it's that combination of the two working together that really pushes things forward. And I have to say we are fortunate in Oakville. We do have a very supportive council when it comes to green initiatives in the environment. So uh, it does help a lot. Uh, so road ecology is something you're now working on. The town has sort of begun the process. And when most of us think of road ecology, we think, you know, Alberta, where they're dealing with high levels of uh uh, of road collisions with uh, ungulates on the major highways outside of the provincial parks or down uh, in the, the southern, southern portions of southern Ontario where there's a lot of sensitive land and sensitive species and species at risk like snapping turtles and things like that. But in a suburb like Oakville, why is it important to have a road ecology plan? Well, again, part of, uh, I guess, the push to start it was 
a lot of the development that's going to be happening in North Oakville and the opportunity to look at it more comprehensively because we know transportation corridors have a huge impact on wildlife, uh, not just on wildlife, but on the environment. So the road ecology program, uh, after we did the Oakville Wildlife Strategy, that was one of the key findings when we were looking at what things could we do to make things better. Uh, we found that a road ecology strategy would be a good thing to do. So we are working on that now. We're working with a really great consultant. She's one of the leaders in road ecology actually internationally. And it's not just about those big things. It's, well, first of all, we do actually have a species at risk in Ontario and in Oakville. In fact, Southern GTA, where we are, is one of the most biodiverse areas in all of Canada. So you know, we do have things for safety, for example, for deer. We don't want people hitting deer. That's a safety issue for people, so that's uh, something. We've got species at risk, so we want to make sure that those are protected. But, and I know people kind of, uh, it's kind of sad, but uh, you do get people, oh, it's just a squirrel, or it's a raccoon, or, you know, the more common animals. And really, I think, well, this is my personal opinion, I, I don't think that running them over is, it's just wrong. Uh, on many levels, but if we keep treating animals with that attitude, eventually those are going to be species at risk because we started, it, those animals that are now at risk weren't always like that, and if we keep threatening them and doing things that, that cause issues for them, eventually they're going to start disappearing too. To find out more about Donna's work for the town of Oakville, visit oakville.ca. That's the show for this week, folks. More about our Living with Wildlife conference can be found at furbeardefenders.com slash events. I'd like to thank Brad Gates of AAA Gates Wildlife Control for his ongoing support of Defender Radio. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.